following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. In Hebrew, there is the idea that the one who comes from your own body, somebody who has your DNA, not somebody you've adopted, is going to be your own son, and he brought him outside. He's going to be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. I have no children. My wife Sarah and I, we have no children. And God says, You will have children. In fact, you'll have so many that you won't be able to count them. And then in 16... There's another interaction. About ten years goes by. So God says, I'm going to... First he says, leave the land. He leaves the land. He comes and he's a nomad. And he says, I'm going to give all this land to your heirs, to your offspring. And then God says, I'm going to be a shield to you. And I'm going to give you all this land. He says, how are you going to do that? I don't have an heir. My slave is going to be my heir. He says, no, you're going to have children. You're going to have lots of children. Ten years goes by. That's a long time when you're waiting for a child to come. Ten years have gone by, and since that promise was given to Abraham, there's been no children. Also note these markers. As you're reading through Genesis, you can read through Genesis very quickly, but pay attention to the time stamps. Ten years, 13 years. There's a lot of silence from God, at least based on the biblical text. God talks to Abram very infrequently. Ten years goes by, 13 years go by, silence. A long time for Abram to believe God, to demonstrate faith, or at times a lack of it. There's a lot of divine silence here. Sarai, Abram's only wife to this point, proposes a solution. Have children by my slave, Agar. Abram listens to his wife and Hagar becomes pregnant. This seems to solve the problem of the missing heir. It also confirms the infertility of Sarah. If there was any doubt as to which one of them was infertile, this doubt has been removed now. It's Sarai who is infertile, not Abram. And it introduces immediate discord into the patriarch's family. Tension arises very quickly. But at least it looks like the problem of the missing heir has been solved. Genesis 17, another 13 years goes by. Abram thinks that Ishmael is the heir, the solution to the problem. There's tension in the family. Um, Hagar and Sarai are not getting along, but they have this child. And Abram has been no doubt doting on Ishmael and, and seeing him as the coming heir. Ishmael's 13 years old at this time in, in Genesis 17. And God comes to Abram and says, let's just read it. When Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Yahweh Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Here again, the idea is of multiplication Um, descendants, offspring, over and over. This is the theme. Then Abram fell on his face 
And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means um, revered father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of nations. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. One commentary I was looking at, I kind of thought what that must have looked like for Abraham to show up at the village, you know, and he's got Ishmael with him, his only son. And he says, I got a new name. My new name is Father of Nations. And he's got one child. You know, I'm like, well, you got a long ways to go, Abraham. But that's what God promised him. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be to to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. He's going back to the promises in chapter 12 and bringing them all together. The land, the descendants, forever, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you, you shall be, um, shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. No confusion here. First time I said the son is going to come from your body. Now I'm saying that the son is going to come from you and Sarah. Very clearly, this is going to be a miracle child. I will bless her. And she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. By the way, Abraham and Sarah both thought this was hilarious. That's why the son is named Laughter, Isaac. Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Is there anybody here who is ninety years old? I don't think so. Do any of you have parents who are in their 90s? Okay, some of you have parents who are still living in their 90s. Uh, you're talking to them on Facebook or Messenger. Or you get an email and says, hey, mom's pregnant. That would make family reunions very interesting. This is what God is promising to Abraham and Sarah. No mistake about it, this child is a fulfillment of the promises that God has given to them. The laughter child. And Abraham said to God, he's still not buying it, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. 
I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Abraham's response? Obedience. God says, you and Sarah are going to have a child. It's because of the covenant that I am making with you and your offspring. You will have many children. And the sign of this covenant is going to be circumcision. The male organ of reproduction is going to be marked so that you can remember that I have made a promise to you that you will have many offspring. In fact, you will have offspring that lasts forever. The perpetuity of the Jewish people to this day, 4,000 years, is an affirmation of this covenant that God made with Abraham 4,000 years ago. And there's a sign, and the sign is circumcision. Now, God says you need to do it when the child is only eight days old. That is a significant change because up until this time, circumcision has been practiced in association with puberty, with uh, marriage, and with sexual activity. It's the idea of the the male um, young man is beginning to be an adult, is going to be married, is going to be participating in sexual activity, and so the circumcision rite has a very um, sexual connotation to it. God removes it from that context and says, no, it's not about sex. It's not about that. It is about my promise to you that you will have offspring forever. And the connection then is assigned, or the sign is given to babies who have nothing to do with um, choosing it or not choosing it. They're not getting ready for anything. It is a sign that they are part of this covenant. They've been brought into the covenant community by the fact of their birth into this community. So that's the background of the sign of this covenant and what the Jews are thinking about it. The interesting thing is that this sign, even though it's very significant and it's given to the patriarch, Abraham, at the very beginning of the blessing on the Jewish people, when you come to the Mosaic law, it's not mentioned very often. How many of you have a guess as to how many times circumcision is mentioned in the formal law of Moses? Anybody have a guess? I realize not too many people have done what I did this week and type in circumcision, find, and count how many times it comes up. So I have an edge here. How how many think it is uh, ten or more? Maybe ten, okay. How many think it's it's five or less? Because I'm making a point, you're guessing, oh, maybe we'll go with five. You know how many times circumcision is mentioned in the formal law code? One time. One time. And it's only mentioned in passing. Because the passage in which it occurs is discussing the, um, the rites for restoring ritual purity after a woman gives birth. And it talks about if a woman gives birth to a male who will be circumcised on the eighth day, then she's unclean for this long, and then she has to do these ceremonies. And then if she gives birth to a, a girl baby, you know, she has these rituals. Of course, circumcision is not mentioned regarding girl babies because it's only a male um, sign that was given to Abraham. It has nothing to do with girls. So it's only mentioned once there. It's mentioned one other time in Exodus, but it's before they even leave Egypt. And it says you have to be circumcised if you're going to practice Passover. 
So it becomes very clearly associated as a, as a sign of the Jewish people. And if you're going to celebrate Passover, you need to be circumcised. That's the only two times it's mentioned. Shows up again in Joshua, just before they celebrate Passover. Everybody has to be circumcised before they celebrate Passover and before they go into Jordan. Doesn't show up a whole lot. So why, by the time we get to Galatians, some 2,000 years later, is it such a big deal? If it's not mentioned that much in the law, one time, then why are they becoming so obsessed about it in, this, uh, in the passage that we're going to look at today. There's a couple of reasons for that. Possibly, and I, I'm not sure about this one, but possibly um, as the time went by and the, the Greeks and the Romans began to be the dominant people um, in Israel, and as the Israelites found themselves in Babylon um, because of the exile, they're increasingly surrounded by people who do not practice circumcision. So it becomes something that is unique for the Jewish people. So it's, it's a unique practice for them. It becomes less common among the people around them. But it also becomes a shorthand. In other words, how do you describe someone who follows the law? The very first thing that you would do, or not that you would do, but that you would experience as a Jewish male um, in the Jewish community would be circumcision. So this is the very first step on the journey of following the Mosaic law. So because it's the very first thing that you do, it, is, it becomes kind of a, a code word, not a code word, but the shorthand for somebody who keeps the whole law, somebody who is following the Mosaic code. So it becomes a, a word that, that is, the sign itself is important, but actually what it's related to, keeping the law, becomes important. Let's look at this passage, Galatians 5, 2 to 12. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I want to start out by looking at the very first verse there. There's a word, if. In the middle of that verse, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. It's important to note that because Paul is dealing with this group of people hypothetically. 
They have written to him. They're asking about this or he has heard that there are people that are are trying to add something to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, if you go through with this, if you people in Galatia decide to follow their advice and add circumcision, then here are some consequences that are going to follow. He's not talking to people who have already performed circumcision. This is a hypothetical situation. He's also not talking to Jews who are already circumcised. Because in other places, he says that that's, that doesn't matter. If you're circumcised, don't seek to remove the marks of it. If you're uncircumcised, don't seek circumcision. So here he's talking to people that are considering it. But if you do, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you decide to add circumcision, you have to add everything. Because you're not justified in two different ways. You're not justified by faith in Jesus Christ and by the law. It's one or the other. And so if you add works of the law to justification, if you add this to your salvation, then you're saying, I'm abandoning Jesus Christ and I'm going with the law. He says, you can't do that. You can't have both. It's one or the other. So you either go by faith and grace in Jesus Christ or you follow the law. And it needs to be all of it, not just circumcision. All those pork steaks that you guys enjoy, you have to forget about that too. So it's not just circumcision that we're talking about here. It's either works or grace. It cannot be a hybrid. Again, in verse 4, hypothetically, if you do this, if you add circumcision to this salvation from um, from Christ, then you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law are severed from Christ. This word severed is very interesting because Paul uses it in another context to talk about what happens to a married woman when her husband dies. When a married woman's husband dies, the contract or the covenant with her husband is severed. It's cut off. It's the same word. And so it's like if you decide to add circumcision, then it's almost as if Jesus, as your husband, has died to you. The, the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ has been severed. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, sometimes we use this, this passage to talk about falling from grace as if you lose your salvation. What Paul is saying here is not that you were a Christian, you were saved, and now you've lost your salvation. What he's saying is, if you begin to follow by faith and then you add this for whatever reason, probably to avoid shame, probably to avoid um, persecution from the Jews that were there. If you choose to add this, then you have removed yourself from the realm of grace. You have exited that place where you receive salvation by grace and you have come into the realm of works. And he goes on to explain that salvation is by the Spirit. Verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Earlier in Galatians 4, 6, he talks about, it's by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. It's a wonderful passage talking about the, the confirmation or the assurance 
of our salvation that the Holy Spirit gives to us, mystically communicating with our spirit. And it's by that same spirit, by faith, that we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Here we see that Paul is affirming for the Galatians that they are not going to do this. And in 7 and 10, he does the same thing. He starts out speaking hypothetically, if you do this, but then later he says, but I know you won't. If you do this, you're going to be in trouble, but I know that you're better than that, that you'll think through this and come out on the right side. It's not the flesh. It is the spirit who brings salvation. It's not our flesh. And often he will contrast spirit and flesh. And so when he's saying here, it's by the spirit, by implication, he means it's not by the flesh. It's not by doing physical acts such as circumcision or keeping the law that we attain salvation. It's by the Spirit working in us and affecting the work of God in our lives. Why? Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. First of all, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is the value. There might have been a temptation for after they get this lesson, after the Gentiles hear that circumcision doesn't make you special, that they would begin to go the other direction and say, well, I'm uncircumcised. And as if to put the Jews down, like, I didn't do that. I have nothing to do with the law of Moses. You guys are all wrong. I've got it right. I'm un- no, 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 no. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has nothing to do with any mark that you might put on your body. It is Jesus Christ who has done everything, and we rest in Him by faith. And it's the Spirit that affects this. And this this wonderful line here, only faith working through love. You know, there's only five words there, and it's like a whole systematic theology course, just crammed right in there. This expresses the whole means and process of salvation. It is faith that initiates and assures our salvation, and our faith is the working kind that works out of love for the Father, not out of fear trying to earn the Father's love. So it's faith, we believe, we receive it, but the consequence of that faith, as we see in James, is that it automatically produces love and good works. And the next chapter, later on in this chapter, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. This is exactly what he's talking about here. It's faith working itself out through love. Think about your children. Imagine if you, you get up in the morning and uh, you, you, you go in to wake up your, your son or your daughter and they're not there. They're not in bed. Okay, first sign that something is amiss. Okay. You didn't have to wake them up. They're they're not in bed anymore. And their room is picked up. Their bed is made. And you come downstairs and you smell bacon and eggs or whatever your favorite smell is in the morning. And you come downstairs and your children have... And it's it's not Father's Day. It's not Mother's Day. It's not Christmas. It's it's just a normal day. And they're all sitting there saying, We made breakfast for you. And you get done, and as soon as you're done, they clean everything up, they take it out of the kitchen, they do all the dishes, they put everything away, and they say, okay, and for lunch, this is what we're going to do. And you're just like, what's going on? Now, some of you already have children like this, so bless you if this is not abnormal sounding. 
Um, in our household, that might be a little bit abnormal. And so you're beginning to wonder kind of what's going on. And by supper time, you finally say, what's going on? He says, well, we, we, we thought that if we did these things, then you would love us. And then all of a sudden, all the good stuff they were doing all the day gets kind of, ew. Because you realize that you, as a parent, have been communicating something very badly. That your love is dependent upon stuff that they do. This is what Paul is saying here. It's like, if you're trying to do stuff, if you're trying to add stuff to get God to love you more, you're adding to your salvation. This is not about trying to get bonus points with God. And he tells them, you were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul's favorite metaphor for the Christian life is the race, is running. The continual day-to-day effort that we're putting into our, our Christian life and living out our Christian life. And he says, you were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who tripped you up? Who added something? In fact, in Galatians 2.2, he himself says, I want to make sure that I run, but not in vain. This persuasion or this teaching is not from him who calls you. Whenever Paul talks about him who calls, it's always God. And he's saying this teaching is not from God. This is not new revelation. This is not a new super apostle who showed up to teach you some new truth. This is not from God. In fact, he goes on ironically to say, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The irony here is that he is likening the teaching of these uh, Judaizers who would be super Jews, and he's likening their teaching to leaven, which in the, within the Jewish context is often something that they're trying to remove from their homes as a, as a sign of, of uncleanness. So they need to get ready for, for the special festival coming. They're trying to get rid of the leaven. And he's saying their teaching is like leaven. In fact, this bad teaching might leaven the whole lump. It might mess up all the teaching that you have received up to this point about grace and faith. But again, in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than the one that I am proposing, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. This troubling you is not just little irritants. This is a strong word. In fact, it's the same word that's used when Jesus is surrounded by all the people who are mourning the death of Lazarus. Two verses later, it says Jesus wept. In verse 33, Jesus was troubled. He was agonized by all the the mourning that's going on associated with the death of Lazarus. And this is the same word that Paul is using. These people are causing a great deal of mental anguish in the lives of the Galatians. And Paul is not happy about it. As you see from the last verse in the passage, he had some very strong words for these people who are causing discord, who are causing tension, who are causing people to be upset. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Perhaps some of these false teachers said, Paul preaches circumcision. Well, yeah, he did before his conversion. But after his conversion, he realized that circumcision is not the sign anymore. 
And I'm not still preaching it. And if I am still preaching circumcision, why are the Jews being so hard on me? Everywhere he went, the Jews were in an uproar because they thought that Paul was saying, down with the law, which was a misunderstanding of what he was teaching. But he is not teaching circumcision anymore. It's interesting. He says, I am, why am I still being persecuted uh, that word persecution is the same word that he uses in Galatians 1.13 to describe what he did to the church. So it's, it's a, a direct contrast. He's saying, you know, before I preached circumcision and I was persecuting the church. But if I'm still preaching that message, why am I being persecuted like I used to do the church? So his message has changed and now he is the one who is receiving that persecution. If I still preach circumcision then the, case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What is the offense of the cross? For the Jews, the greatest offense of the cross is that Jew and Gentile now have equal status as people of God. The Jews had the idea that they are the people of God. They are the special people of God. They missed the point that they were a special people of God, a nation of priests who was supposed to evangelize all of the other nations around them. Instead, they adopted their other gods and they, they missed that. But they hung on to the idea that we're special. We're special. And now, in Jesus Christ, everyone, circumcised and uncircumcised, have the ability to be given the right to be called sons of God. That's offensive. The Jews were not fond of that message. Finally, in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you, who upset you, who trouble you, would emasculate themselves. Not just circumcision, but emasculation, castration. Now, this is not just uh, a, a way for Paul to just be mean and make a pun. He's using some language here that would have been especially um, powerful for these Jewish teachers. This word that he uses is referring to ceremonial castration that the pagan priests would have practiced in some of the pagan um, religions in that time. And they would have been familiar with that. And that practice of castration in service to your God would have been uh, very repugnant to Jews because that's not anything that God ever commanded in the Mosaic Law. But what Paul here is saying is that if you're going to teach useless mutilation of the flesh... Why not just go with the pagans? Why not just, just pick up all their practices? Because what you're doing in the flesh, what you're doing in your body, has nothing to do with your salvation. So you're just like the pagans. This is a very strong message that Paul is delivering to these false preachers who would add this to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me read the passage one more time. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 
You were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, I'm pretty sure that there's no one here who is determined to seek circumcision, to add something to their Christian faith. I'm pretty sure that's not an issue. So what is the point of this passage for us? The main thrust of this passage in our current predominantly Gentile context is that our salvation does not come through religious rites or any works that we ourselves perform. Going down that road will remove you from the realm of grace in Jesus Christ. And we know that we, we can't earn our salvation. We, we, we've got that down. None of us are, are tempted to think, oh, I've got to earn it. Of course we don't think that. But do we really believe that it's wholly, completely of grace? It's amazingly tempting to think that we might just be able to add a teensy bit to our salvation. To earn a few extra bonus points with God. We are tempted to enter into a transactional relationship with God. If I do this, then God will do something for me. That if I can just get one step up on the competition, then I'll get more blessings than my brother or sister in Christ. If I do this, then God does something for me. Now, that sounds really crass. And of course, nobody would think that way. But here's a way to check your thinking. When bad stuff happens to you here on the mission field, away from your home country, when you hear perhaps of another missionary having a hard time, what goes through your mind? A new family has just arrived in the mission field with their family of eight children less than two weeks after arriving. The husband is shot dead in front of his wife and son in their new country. Another missionary family arrives in a very difficult country of Papua New Guinea. They're there for about a year, and they learn that one of the young men that they're discipling has abused their toddler daughter. Five missionary men move with their wives and children to a remote jungle area to reach the unreached. All five are killed a little over a year after their first contact with the remote tribe. These are all true stories, and I imagine that there are more that could be told here. And often we're tempted to think, God, you know, we, we went all the way. We give up our family and our jobs and our houses and, and we came to this country to tell people about you. They've given up so much. 
Why do you let this stuff happen to them? That those questions enter your mind is a warning that perhaps you have entered into not a grace relationship with God, but a transactional relationship with God, where I have done this and therefore you owe me this. That's not grace. That's a transaction. And if you're still convinced that maybe you're not there, I would encourage you to read Luke 17. Jesus tells a parable there, and I would guess that some of you will find his words a little harsh. We're saved by faith through God's grace. Hallelujah! Hallelujah that it is freely offered and given to us. After that, after we have been bought with a price, we are the bond slaves of God. We are His slaves. And we are completely and absolutely free from the bondage of sin which will kill us and destroy us. And becoming a slave of Jesus Christ is the best thing that can happen to you. But we're still His servants to do with as He chooses. So the the message of the Judaizers is that you can get a little more credit. If you do this, you'll get a little bit more blessing. It's still very, very tempting to us today. Let's pray. Father, we are who we are because you have made us your children. We are not what we could be because of the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of your spirit changing us and renewing us day by day. We've been reminded today through communion that the price has been paid. We have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been freed from the bondage of sin. And we thank you for that. We thank you too for the reminder of your word that that we can't add to our salvation, that you have done it all. And I pray that we would be grateful recipients of that and also grateful fans and people who tell others about that message joyously and hilariously. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.com dot o r g